turn your Bibles to John chapter 5, verses 17 to 30. We'll be continuing God's uh, word in the book of John. We'll be going through a series in the book of John. Last week we saw how, how Jesus, he healed a paralytic. He, he showed mercy to someone who wasn't deserving of mercy. He, he chose to show mercy to this man who wasn't seeking Jesus. He, he chose mercy to a man who wasn't looking for Jesus, didn't recognize him, and didn't respond in faith. He, he chose to pour out mercy, and we saw that last week that that is really how Jesus comes to us, that he pours out undeserved mercy on us. He seeks us. He takes the initiative, and our hope is that we receive mercy because of him, not because we deserve it. And in response to that, the desire is that we might have faith in him. Well, turn your Bibles to John chapter 5, verse 17 and 30. If you don't have a Bible, we have an outline for you. It's got the passage on there. If you'd like an outline, you want to take some notes, I think they're in the back there. Uh, go ahead and grab a sheet. If you didn't get one, you can put your hand up. An usher can get around to you. Did anybody get one? Everybody get one of those handouts? Anybody want one? Of those handouts? All right, perfect. Thank you. Let's read this God's holy inspired word together. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also... The Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out of it. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for these words that you spoke to those who didn't recognize you, so that they might see you and understand who you are and, and live in response to that. God, there's a lot of truth in these verses. I pray that you would help us have clarity. I pray that you would help us see clearly who you are, Jesus. I, I pray that you would help us live in light of who you are. 
and it would affect our hearts and minds and our souls. Lord, I pray that you would wake us up. We would not be sleepy to who you are, Jesus, that we would not be overly familiar, that you would make this truth of who you are, Jesus, alive to us. And God, I pray for each and every one of us who might be lacking hope today, that you would impart hope, that you would impart faith, that you would impart fresh life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a few years back, I don't know if any of you guys ever watch so-called reality TV, but a few years back there was a reality show, and it was depicting the lives of different workers, and every week they would have two to three different kinds of jobs, and they would go on the job site, and so maybe one week it would be they'd go to a restaurant, and they'd have waiters, and and then they'd go to another job site, and they'd, they'd be in a factory, or they'd go somewhere else, and they'd be amongst a bunch of programmers, or they'd go to different workplaces, and sanitation engineers, and whatever, construction workers, and they'd go to these different jobs, and what the people in the jobs didn't know is that there was somebody among them who wasn't really like them. And, and, and they would record how they related to each other and how they related to this mystery person. You as the viewer knew this mystery person was special, but they didn't know that. And so they just treated him like an ordinary worker, like an ordinary co-worker. And, and yet the big reveal came, and at the, at the climax of each segment, uh, it would be revealed that, that the person who was working with them, this new person who started, who was bumbling, who didn't know what they were doing, who maybe they yelled at or they related to as if he wasn't very smart or good, um, it was revealed that this person was the CEO. And, and the, the show was called Undercover Boss because the boss would go undercover. And, and when this reveal happened, it was, it was kind of humorous because some of the people were a little worried, right? They wondered, oh, no. I just yelled at the CEO of the company. Or, or some people were a little shocked and laughing and thinking, well, my opinion of the CEO is changing. And then some people thought, well, this actually gives me assurance that, that I can relate to him, that he knows who we are, he knows what work is like, and it increases my confidence in him. This passage, it kind of comes out of the blue. In, in the narrative of John, and you have to remember that John, he picks and chooses the accounts he shares for a reason. He's not just sharing history. As I said last week, he wasn't just sharing an historical account of a miracle. He was sharing a miracle to show that we could receive undeserved mercy. And in the middle of that, Jesus, he tells this man, get up, take up your bedroll, and walk. And there was a problem with that. The problem was that the Jews had a rule that you couldn't do certain things on the Sabbath because they wanted to supposedly honor God's law, and instead they created all their own laws and rules. They wanted to honor God's law of not working on the Sabbath. And yet they took it to extremes and they opposed their own rules, their own law. And then they, they come to criticize Jesus. They come as if they are judging Jesus. And, and they come to criticize the work that Jesus is doing. And so John, he reveals this like the undercover boss. And he says, you know, you're, you're criticizing Jesus. And then Jesus says, let me show you who I really am. And so in the midst of this account of the man he's made well and showed mercy to, we see who Jesus is, and he reveals himself. And, and this passage is one of the most important passages in all the book of John because it reveals truths about who Jesus is that really influence our whole view of Jesus and our whole view of the book of John. And, and what we'll see that Jesus is showing to us is that, that he's the boss, that he is the boss, and it changes how we live, and it changes how we relate to him. 
or it's at least meant to. You see, Jesus, he's coming to these Jews, and they didn't recognize him. They didn't know who he was. And he wants them to see because they are giving him an inquiry. They are, they are acting as if they're set up to correct him. They're acting as if they judge him. And so he, he stops in the middle of what he's doing, and he explains to them just who he is, that he's the boss, and it's meant to affect how they live and relate to him. Look at his answer. He says, my father's working and I'm working. And says they were seeking all the more to kill him. Now, if you knew somebody was going to kill you, you might not continue to double down on the thing they wanted to kill you for. But you see, Jesus is confident in who he is. He's confident that in him is life. He's confident that, that no one else can take his life from him without him laying his life down. He's also confident that he must bear the judgment for mankind. And so he's not concerned here. Instead of doing what, what we as humans would do, protecting his life, he doubles down. They said, you know, they're concerned because he's making himself equal with God as if he's a co-equal deity. And Jesus says, no, let me tell you how it really is. I am one with God. I'm not separate from him. I am God. He wasn't just claiming to be a God on the same level as God. He was saying, I'm one with the Father. And that's the first thing that we see it really in verses 19 and 20, is that, that Jesus, he is one with the Father. Now, if you were a Jew living in that day, that would have been a scandalous claim. Even the name of God, they revered as so holy that they didn't even say his name out loud. And, and when the scribes would, would write down God's name, they wouldn't write down everything. They would write down the, the tetragrammaton, the, the YHWH, it, it stood for Yahweh. Because it was too holy, they didn't want to claim to be able to speak even the word of God. And yet Jesus doesn't just speak the word of God. He doesn't just speak that, that he and the, and the Father are one. He says that I am one with the Father in every way. It was jarring to the Jews. The listeners, they had to, had to make a choice about what they believed about Jesus. You see, either in that moment he was an extreme heretic guilty of blasphemy, or he was in fact equal with God. And, and that's really the challenge that as we hear these verses, Jesus lays out for each and every one of us. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? He doesn't allow himself to be relegated to the unimportant. He doesn't allow you to be comfortable. And instead he says, I and the Father are one. And, and if Jesus is one with the Father, that has implications for how you view him, how you relate to him, how you come to him. If he was equal with God, then every Jew should follow him. If he's God's son, they have to obey him completely. If Jesus is God's son, then, then he is in charge. He should be worshipped. Their positions and their authority have to give. They have to submit their positions and authority to him. You see, when Jesus is saying this, it meant something to them. And it meant they'd have to give up their authority. It meant they'd have to give up their rights. They'd have to give up the idea that they were in charge, their positions, and, and, and everything about them would have been subservience to him. It was challenging, though, because it, it, it meant changing their perspective, not only about him, but about themselves. And, and that's what seeing Jesus rightly does. It changes our perspective, not just about him, but about ourselves but what rights we have, what privileges we have, what authority we have. And all of the rights and privileges and authority we have, they're in submission to him as 
one with a father. They were faced with this decision, and they were seeking all the more to kill him. They wanted to do away with him because he was not just claiming to be equal with God. It was challenging their very personhood, who they are, that they were the ones in authority. Jesus wanted them to have a clear choice to make. In verse 19, look down your Bibles. He uses some language that draws on a, a fairly common family and business practice at the time. You know, in, in our day, we don't necessarily take on the job of our dad. You know, if I was to have done that, my dad was into excavation, which, which means that he, he built roads and, and foundations and, and cleared lots and made, made room for homes to be built. Now, my dad, at the time, he hoped I would do that. He hoped I would follow up in his footsteps. Clearly, I didn't. Um, I, don't, I don't know how to build roads very well. I don't know how to do excavation. But every summer from when I was 12 until I left home, I was working with him outside, and he was showing me the tricks of the trade. And, and back in that day, um, there, there wasn't a choice. People automatically did what their father did. Their father wasn't alive. They did what their father's brother did or a family member. And so Jesus here, he's using this language. Look in verse 19. He says, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. You know, a father in that day, he would perfect his craft. He would become good at it. And then he would pass those special skills on down to his child, typically the adult, the oldest son. And he passed this, this skill on, the special trade secrets on, and he would school his son in, in the tricks of the trade. He would show his son everything he did, and his son would see him. He'd be with him. He would, he would see everything that he did and the way that he did everything. And then so much so that, that when the father went to hand on the business, the family trade, the son was so aware of what the father did that he did everything the father did so that it was just like his father's work. And that's what Jesus is saying, is, is that he and the Father are one so much so that he sees everything that God is doing. He was there from the beginning. Jesus has seen everything, all of creation. Jesus would not only seen it, he was a part of it so much so, he says, that not only do I see what the Father is doing, I do what the Father is doing. What the Father does, I do. So we can say that, that in creation, yes, God created, but yet Jesus was the agent of creation. Whatever the Father does, the Son does, eternally equal. Jesus is using this kind of apprenticeship language here and is scandalous to the Jews because he's claiming that, that he was there from the beginning, that he's seen everything, that he knows exactly what God does, that he has that special secret knowledge, that he, he knows the mysteries of God's working. He's claiming an ability and an understanding that no one else can claim. He's saying, I'm only doing what I see the Father doing. And in fact, he says, I don't do anything else, nothing other than what I see my Father doing. I don't do anything else other than what I see my Father doing. Our work is so integrated, so alike, that it can be said that I don't do anything he doesn't do. There's an absolute union of God the Father and Jesus the Son. In case you're wondering, have you ever heard that that argument that Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, that, that's, that's the most feeble understanding of Scripture because if you get what he's saying here, he is definitely claiming to be co-equal with God. You ever wonder where the doctrine of the Trinity comes from? It wasn't something created afterwards, something that Jesus was teaching us here. 
He's saying there's an absolute union of the God, the Father, and the Son. No conflict, no independence. And our relationship is completely loving. Look down at verse 20. He says, for the Father loves the Son. Why does Jesus do everything that the Father does? Why can it be said that they are in union like that? Well, because the Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. And the Father shows him everything. And then he goes on to tell the Jews, he says, greater works than these, greater works than the miracles you've seen will I do. The Father's going to show me greater works and, and so that you might marvel. Jesus knows exactly how God's work. And the implication of that is pointed. Implication for the Jews, it has an effect, or it's meant to. If, if they then believe that Jesus was saying he is equal to God, all the work that he does is the same work that the Father does. That means that everything that Jesus did and said had to be obeyed, had to be responded to just like God. It, it meant that everything that Jesus did could be trusted. It meant that everything that Jesus said was right and good and trustworthy and had the full power and authority and support of God. As we, as we think about this for ourselves, the application for us is pointed to. If, if Jesus really is co-equal with God, then, then he can be trusted. Even if we don't understand, he understands all the secret things of God. He understands the mysteries of God, and, and he's revealed the things of God. He's doing the work of God. He continues to do God's work in our life. He continues to redeem, and we can trust in him. The question is, will we trust in him? Do we trust that, we, that Jesus knows what is right, that he knows what he's doing? Will, will you follow him knowing his ways perfect and right and good, just as God's way is perfect and right and good. Jesus told the Jews that, that God was going to show even greater works than these that they marvel. And you wonder, what, what's he talking about? He's talking about showing them the fact that he's the one who gives life, that he raises the dead to life. The greatest work that Jesus did, the greatest work of God that Jesus did as well, was to bring the dead to life. And in verse 21 we see that he says, for the Father raises the dead to life and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Jesus has the power to give life. Jesus has the power to give life. The Jews don't have the ability to give life. No one else has the ability to give life. N nowhere else you might go gives you life. No job gives you life. No position gives you life. No money, no Fame gives you life. Jesus alone has the power to give life. And he says that only God can raise the dead. As the Father raises the dead and gives him life, so the Son gives life to whom he will. You know, raising the dead, it, it's not the purview of any man or woman who ever lived. Recently, there was a guy named Elon Musk. You might have heard of him. He, he demonstrated a neural implant technology, his company called Neuralink, and he was testing it on pigs. And, and according to this technology site, GeekWire, he, he said that they plan to place the implants in people initially to see if those who become paralyzed due to spinal cord injuries, they can regain motor functions through thought alone. That's pretty remarkable. Then he made a bold statement. He goes, he said, all your senses, your sight, your hearing, your feeling, your pain, they're all electrical signals passed 
from by your by neurons to your brain. He says, if you can correct those signals, you can solve everything from memory loss to hearing loss to blindness, paralysis, depression, insomnia, pain, seizures, anxiety, stroke, brain damage. He says, these can all be solved by Neuralink. It's quite a bold claim. Now, that'd be really spectacular if we're able to someday address those problems. But with all the spectacular advances of modern medicine, we still cannot create life. We're, we're given life. We don't have life in ourselves. And yet Jesus says he's not given life. He has life in himself just like the Father has life in himself. He is the source of life. And, he, and he's really just echoing what, what John has already told us in the beginning about Jesus, that he was in the beginning with God. That he said in verse 3 of John 1 that all things were made by him, through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. You know, think about that. We are not self-sufficient. Sometimes we pretend to be, right? We are not self-existent. We don't create our life. We're not in charge of our life. We don't receive life on our own. You know, we didn't make ourselves born to begin with. And it says, yet Jesus, in him is life. And he's the one who gives life at his will. He's the one at his good pleasure, at his desire, at his wish. He gives life. In both physical life and spiritual life, they're given at the will of the Son. And he says the dead are given life at the pleasure of Jesus. Look at verse 24. He says, truly, truly, whenever you see that in the Bible, it means this is absolutely true. It's like underlining it three times and highlighting it. It says, truly, truly, pay attention to this. This is absolutely true. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. So he tells us how he grants life, that whoever he wills is all those who hear his word. And that, that word is all throughout the gospel. John is used to refer to the gospel. Whoever hears that word of Jesus and responds and believes in God who sent has eternal life. He doesn't come to the judgment, but has passed from death to life. It's up to Jesus to who receives life. But here's what he says. Everyone who believes in him and his words and believes in God who sent him receives eternal life. Now, for, for us, we don't think very much of that sometimes because it becomes familiar to us as Christians. We, we become familiar with the idea of having eternal life. But I want you to think back to before you became a believer. You were living in death. He's telling these Jews as well that you don't have life apart from me. Apart from me, you're dead. But now is coming, and one way we'll be here. Now is here when I will speak, and the dead will come to life. I remember when I first responded to the gospel. I remember that I all of a sudden became alive. That I had a, a new joy, a new passion for God. I still have, I think, somewhere the Bible that I, that I first got afterwards, and, and I started reading. And, and I think I, I sat down, and I was so enthralled with this new life that I had been given that, that I, I opened up to the book of Ephesians. And it's kind of funny. I highlighted the whole book because <laughs> everything just stood out to me. And I thought, I, I feel guilty not highlighting the other parts because it's all just so good. It just was popping off the page. It seemed alive. It seemed fresh. I wanted to share that life with other people. I, I felt like I had the ability to live for him in a way that I hadn't before. 
we can become very familiar with the idea of in him is life. We should never be familiar with it. Because he's given this eternal life to us, not just in the, for the future, but for right now. The eternal life has broken into the present. Jesus, in him is life. The eternal life that God always has and has had, he's granted to the Son. The eternal life that the Son has always had and has, he then has given to us. The life that we did not possess the life of Jesus, if we believe in him, we respond to this good news about Jesus, and we believe in the one who sent him, he gives us the very ability to live in him to share the same life that God has, to share the same life that Jesus has. Whoever believes in him have eternal life now. Think about what that means. That means that right now we can enjoy the same life that Jesus has. We can enjoy the same quality of life that God has. Now, I'm not talking about having everything, but we can enjoy peace with God. We can enjoy fellowship with God. We have eternal life, no fear of death. Peace with God, divine forgiveness, fellowship with him. Life with the Holy Spirit. You have new life. But you know what? Sometimes we don't live like that's true, right? You ever live as if you don't have new life? God wants you to see that in him is life, and you have that eternal life here and now. New life of the Holy Spirit. Yes, you might still waver and fail, as, as I do every day. It's not a perfect life that we live, but we have eternal life here and now that's meant to change us all the more. It's meant to give us hope when we face difficulties in life that we can't do, that we have the very life of God in us. He will enable us. He will sustain us. Apart from Jesus, we have no life, but in him we have life. Look at verse 25. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Jesus gives this good news to Jews who are seeking to kill him. He doesn't condemn them. He's merciful to them. In the midst of them seeking to kill him, he, he gives them good news, and he says, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son, and those who hear will live. And he gives them an opportunity to hear and live. Because just like the Father has life, he's the source of life. And he's basically saying that for all who might look alive on the outside, they're just, they're just going through the motions of life, they're spiritually dead, but when they hear Jesus' voice, they can become alive. You might be here today, and maybe you're spiritually dead. You're not yet knowing what it means to have eternal life. You can hear the words of who Jesus is, the fact that he came to bear the judgment that we deserve. He came to live a perfect life for us and in our place, and then give us that life in our place. And then believing that, that God has sent him so that, that we don't have to take on the punishment that we deserve from God for all of our sins. But yet, he has already done that. If we believe these things, we can have life in him. You know, the, the, the world is spiritually dead. There's lots of problems in the world, right? Can, can we all agree there's a lot of problems in the world today, right? And, and right now, as you look around, the problems seem intensified. 
They seem really loud. We can be aware of the very massive problems of racism, the problems of abortion, abuse, human trafficking, child enslavement, poverty, sickness, disease, hatred, murder. And as Christians, if we have the life of Christ in us, we can, we should try to address all these problems, and it's good to work towards this end. And you pick just one problem, you can work your whole life and, and never, never finish that God-honoring, worthy endeavor. And it would be a God-honoring pursuit to seek to bring God's life into that situation. Righting wrongs, seeking justice, working towards safety and freedom and peace. There are all ways we can reflect God's image that we can follow example of Jesus. But none of those problems we might want to address, none of those problems is greater than the problem of spiritual death. And each and every one of those problems can't be solved by human means. Because in him is life. Otherwise, everyone remains dead. The way for that, those problems to be resolved, all those evils that we look around and see, the divisiveness in the world around us, the way for those things to be resolved is for the dead to hear the voice of the Son of God. And that's the largest and most important problem we're to be about solving bringing sanctified human solutions to all the problems I listed, they're a good thing, right? It's good to, to, to think through and, and practically okay, carry out ways to address these problems, but the, the best solution to the deep problem of spiritual death, the only solution is for those problems to be infused with the life of Jesus. For his voice to speak into each and every dead life. To enable us to bear his image in all the problems we face and live out that eternal life that we have in every area of our lives. Unless God gives life, no problem will ever be solved. And yet he promises eternal life. He promises this eternal life now. That's our hope. Don't get hopeless when you look around and see all the problems in life. Say, okay, wait a minute. We have the ability to address those things as we speak the voice of God the gospel into each and every one of those problems. And he'll make the dead come to life. Anyone less than God can't give life. Any solution less than life is no solution at all. But the Son has granted life to us as well. It says, look in verse 26, For as the Father has life in himself, he's granted the Son also to have life in him, and then he gives life to whoever he wills. And if, if Jesus has the power to give life, I have a question for you. How does that affect your life today and every day? If Jesus truly does have the power to give life, how is that affecting you right now? How is that affecting your hope? If you've heard and believed the word of God, then you have eternal life. How, how will you live in the good of his life today? How will you then share his life with others? But not only does he give life, he also has the authority to judge. Look in verses 22 and 23 and then 27 to 30. Jesus has the authority to judge. 
He says, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. That all may honor the son, just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Jesus is telling this to the Jews because they are judging him. He's saying, you, you think you understand the means of what you're judging, but let me share something with you. Let me reveal just who I am. The Father is the one who truly judges, and he's given all authority to me. So, so to stop judging me, I'm the judge. And if you don't honor me, is what Jesus is saying, you don't honor the Son, you're not honoring God. And those words must have, have cut deep like a knife driven in. When Jesus is saying that, they, they, they got the fact that he's saying, you're not honoring me, you're not honoring God. Because I and God are, are one. I judge with the judgment of God. And yet they were dishonoring him, claiming to be able to judge the Son. They, they had a, their own standard of judgment. They held out their own standard to judge Jesus. And they were judging wrongly. And Jesus is saying, I have the right standard because I am the standard. But you know what? We're not, a, we're not unlike the Jews at times, we can be like them, and, and we can judge other people by our own standards. We can actually try to take the place of God by judging other people by the standards we set up. Judging other people by our preferences. Judging other people by our opinions. Assuming other people's motives. You ever done that? You ever assume other people's motives? You ever judge somebody else by your own standard? Jesus speaks to you and I when we're doing that, and he says, No, don't think you're the judge. Don't try to take my place. I've been given all judgment. Now, that's, that's both convicting, but it's also reassuring. Because that means that if anybody is, is off, if anybody needs correction, Jesus is able to do that. And we don't have to feel like we must be the ones to correct every area that we think is, is incorrect. We can rest in him. He's the judge. We can rest in his judgment. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't judge trees by the fruit that we see. But it does, it does mean that we shouldn't judge by what we think, by our standards. All such judgment dishonors the Son and dishonors God. And look at verse 27. He says, he explains why he judges. He says in verse 27, he has given him authority to execute judgment. Then he says something that's interesting that you might not pick up on if you are a modern-day reader. He says, because he is the Son of Man. Now, for the Jews in that day, they would have immediately got it. This was a title that was reserved for a very unique person in the Old Testament. This is a title reserved, really, that Daniel looks up and he sees the Ancient of Days. He sees the Son of Man. In Daniel 7, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. It was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And Jesus is saying, I am this son of man. I have a kingdom that won't pass away, and, and I have dominion and glory, and my kingdom is going to be full of all peoples. It's going to be full of people who are see, seen as not acceptable. All nations all languages, all tribes, all people will serve me. 
And it's one that won't be destroyed. And so for that reason, Jesus says, I'm the judge because this is who I am. He says, don't marvel at that because the day is coming and, and is now here when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And then he tells about this future day. He says that when they'll come out, and there's only two potential outcomes. What does him being the judge mean? It means that there's only two potential outcomes to this life. Look down at verse 29. It says, some will come out of the tombs, those who've done good. Now, we'll explain what that means to the resurrection of life. Those who've done evil, the resurrection of judgment. Now, John 6, 29, we know, and from the whole book of John, really, that the good is the work of God. In John 6, 29, Jesus answers the Pharisees, says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who sent me. You believe in him who he sent. That's the work of God, is believing in Jesus. So if you have done that good work of believing in him, trusted in him for your works, you'll come out to the resurrection of life, not to be judged. You won't come out into the courtroom. You'll come out into the family room. Instead of coming out to be judged, you'll come out to the resurrection of life. But if you've done evil, you'll come out to the resurrection of judgment. And Jesus says, you can be sure of these things because I don't do anything on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment's just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. There's nothing he is doing that's outside of God's will. There's nothing he's bringing about that's outside of God's will. Like a good son, he does these things at the command of his father, and he's seeking to carry out the judgment of the father. He affirms that his judgment is just because it's the judgment of the father. And, and if, if today you're starting to see and it's starting to be revealed who this one is who's in our midst, who this one is who, who is Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God. That, that he is the one who is co-equal with God. He has life in himself and he gives life to all who hear and believe. And that he has the power to judge. The question is, how does that affect how you view him? How you relate to him? Does that give you a little bit of pause when you see that Jesus, in fact, is the one in charge? That he is the one who judges. Does that give you pause when you are tempted to judge other people by your standards? Knowing he is there in your midst. He's with you and he's the judge. How does it affect how you view to him? How, how does it affect how you relate to him? How does it affect how you view yourself? How does it affect you when you've set yourself up as the authority? When you're seeing who he is. Who he's revealed himself to be. And then how does it affect how you relate to other people? When we see that Jesus is the boss, it changes how we live and relate to him. He alone is one with the Father. He alone has the power to give life. He alone has authority to judge. Nothing else and no one else has life. Where are you looking for life? Because in him alone is life. No prestige, no accomplishment, no money, no position. If you truly see that in him is life, it changes what you're living for. It changes who you're living for. We're secure. We don't have to worry about the future or death. Even though we die, we have eternal life. If we believe in him, if we received eternal life from him, we can be confident that, that he has willed or desired for us to have life, and we're secure in him, and no one can take it away. No matter what happens, because we have life, we can begin to experience that life here and now. 
we, that, that life can actually overcome and overpower all of those areas that we don't feel like we can change in. His life gives us true life. And it's meant to transform every aspect of our lives. And knowing he's the judge is sobering. No one else is the judge. Other people are not your judge. That doesn't mean that we don't try to live in a way that's, that's acceptable. But the reality is we don't live to be accepted by other people. We live because we're already accepted by the judge. We've already been judged. All of our sins have been judged in Jesus. And now we no longer will face judgment. Be freed up. You're not defined by what other people think of you. He's the judge. You're not living for their standards. You're living for him now. You've been judged in the death of Christ. And now that you've been raised to new life, we no longer fear. But let's, let's also remember that we're not the judge. It's not our standards that define others. Let's be cautious to not set ourselves up as, as judging others when the true judge has already spoken. And if, and if we will judge trees by their fruit, be careful that we're only judging what he's made clear. Don't assume you know the heart and motives of other people. Be careful we're not judging by our standards, our measures, our preferences. Don't take the place that the Jews took, thinking that they were the ones in charge. They were the ones to judge. Some will be resurrected to death. Some will be resurrected to life. If we placed our hope in him, we're going to be resurrected to eternal life and we can enjoy that life here and now today. Um, let's pray and have the band come up. Jesus, thank you for revealing who you are. Thank you for revealing that you're the one in charge. Thank you for revealing that our hope is in you, our life is in you, and we can enjoy that life now. May that have an effect here and now today. And God, may we trust in you as the eternal good judge. Lord, may we both have confidence that we won't be judged because of that, but also may we trust and rest in your judgment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.